And I almost wanted to say, bring on the persecution. Because right now, it looks like the only thing that is gonna stir awake the American church is persecution. We have become so lazy and apathetic as a church. I don't know anything else that can revive the church other than persecution. I'm not ready to pray it. I'm still looking for plan C, D, E, F, and G. But I'm almost getting to the, even for my own life, I'm like, God, I can't break out of this apathy and this, oh, what's it gonna take? But if you look at the church in persecuted countries, it's thriving. It's thriving. We pray for the persecuted church, but they need to be praying for us. Because maybe they'll lose their lives, but we're in danger of losing our soul. Amen. And so this church that's facing persecution, and uh, I may take a lot of rabbit trails today, but just stay with me, um, is an encouragement to them, don't turn back. The book of Hebrews, that's all it is. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the old way. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better. And so what he's saying to them is he writes this letter to the church is don't turn back. There's no better way. I know it's hard. I know you're, you're frustrated. You're tired. You're but don't turn back because there's no other way to go. Jesus is the only way. And the last message that we shared came from Hebrews chapter six. It actually was chapters five and six, and it was a call to growth. It was a call to obedience and growth in our daily lives. It was a warning to us about not bearing fruit, paying attention to our lives and making sure that the rain we're receiving is producing fruit in our lives. You remember? He used that analogy in chapter six, that the the land that soaks in the rain, what's the rain? It's the voice of God, it's the word of God. I mean, we come to church Sunday after Sunday, we read our little devotion books and we read the Bible and we soak in the rain. But if we look at our lives, is it producing fruit or thistles? Is the way we treat people around us changing? Are we honoring people around us or are we calling everyone idiots and morons? I mean, we can sit here week after week and soak in the rain of God, but if it's not producing change in our lives, there's a warning to us. Stop. God, I want to hear your voice, but we don't change how much time we spend in the word. We don't change how much time we spend in prayer. We don't change how much time we do. But God, we want to hear your voice. Really? In chapter six, verse 11, it says this. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. You gotta understand this. In order for what you hope to come true, he ties it with you've got to keep on loving others. That word loving is not an emotion. You don't have to feel anything toward anyone. Whew, thank God. I mean, if we had to feel loving feelings towards people in order to, uh, I mean, I watched the Miami-Florida State game last night and I finally had to shut it off and get off Facebook because every Florida State fan in the world was irritating me to no end and there was no feelings of love being stirred up toward them. So I had to just shut it off, okay? I don't have to feel loving things towards people that differ from me, but I do have to act in love towards them. And if I don't keep acting in love towards them, I will not receive what I hope to come true. Think of this. 
In, in, in America, the church is like, God, we want revival, we want our nation to change, but we don't want to change how we treat people. And so what we hope for is not coming to pass because there's no obedient action to follow this faith that we have. And we've been given the power. And when we don't feel loving actions, then we gotta stop doing what's stirring up the hatred. Shut off Fox News. Shut off CNN. Shut off Rush Limbaugh. If it's not stirring up the desire to love people, shut it off. Stop posting everything that you read that's stirring up anger and hatred and bitterness. Do what you gotta do to make sure we're acting in love towards one another, towards everybody. That's what he says, he ties that in there. I'm amazed, when I started studying the book of Hebrews, I'm amazed at how much the book of Hebrews talks about the body of Christ as a whole, how we treat one another right here. You know, we like to isolate our relationship f- with God from other people in America. You know, we, we, it's a personal relationship I have with Jesus, and it's true, we have a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's shown by our horizontal relationships, okay? Our faith in Christ is proved by our treatment of others. It's all through the scripture, and we, we say we have this great faith in God, but it's not changing our horizontal relationships. In fact, we're, we're becoming less and less connected as the body of Christ. And here's why. In response to legalism, in response to the generation before us that, that encountered God, and you know, we went to church every time the doors were open. Are you with me, generation? That's how I was raised. I fell asleep more times than I can remember on the pew of a church. Because we went every time the doors were open. But here's the thing. My parents didn't do it because they felt like sinners if they stayed home. They had had such an encounter with with God that they wanted to be together and worship together and, and do all of these things. But then what happens is we pass that on to the next generation and it becomes legalism because it's not done out of intimacy. It's done out of law. We've returned to the law. And so then we try to guilt people into tithing and we try to guilt people into going to church and we try to guilt people. But it's gotta come out of relationship. We're gonna see this even more next week when we talk about the mystery of Melchizedek. This crazy guy that appears in Genesis and then David talks about him in Psalm 100 and the writer of Hebrews. And we think, well, he's only mentioned three times in scripture, he's not real important. But if David, a man after God's own heart, refers to him, then maybe there's more to this guy Melchizedek than we need to know, but we'll talk about that next week. So then look at verse 12. Then, when you do this, when you keep loving others, then you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Lord, how do I stop becoming spiritually dull and indifferent? Start loving others. Act in love towards others. Don't ignore them. Don't be indifferent to them. Start acting in love, especially towards your enemies because then you'll be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. Instead, in becoming so dull and indifferent, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. Now, if I would have started this message today by saying, how many of you want to inherit all of God's promises? I bet every hand in the place would go up. I mean, who wouldn't? Who doesn't want to inherit all that God has promised for us? How do we do it? Well, we do it by faith. What is faith? It's believing that God wants to do it. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God is a rewarder of those who come to him and believe that he exists 
and rewards those who diligently seek him. It's it's faith, it's belief. And so we put that into practice. We believe that his promises are true, but then the second part of that is we conform our lives to that truth. We start acting in the way that he's told us to act because we don't want anything to stop up the flow of his promise in our lives. See, faith is internal and it's external. I have faith that that stool is about to hold me as I sit down. And this is how we live our lives. We have faith. We have faith. I have faith, Pastor. Pastor, I have so much faith. Oh, I have faith in that stool. Oh, we sing songs about the stool. Stool, we lift your name on high. We do it about Jesus, but this is what we do. We have all of this faith, all of the stuff we say and sing, but we don't sit. Now, I know we sit when we sing, but I'm talking about putting action to our faith. I don't have faith in this stool until I sit. And I don't have faith in Jesus until I start doing what he says. If that's not the truth, then Jesus needs to apologize to the rich young ruler who came and said, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, oh yeah, you just have to say this prayer and repeat after me. No, Jesus says, you gotta sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Why? Because is that what we need? No, we need to have faith, which is proved by our obedience, our actions. We cannot separate the two. And then he says, not only do we have to have faith, but we have to have endurance. Endurance means I just don't quit. I don't give up. Galatians chapter six, verse nine says that we will reap a harvest if we keep doing good and do not give up. Keep doing what is right and don't give up. Yeah, you're tired. Yeah, you're weary. Yeah, you you don't like it. Your flesh is like, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. But here's the thing. When you came to the cross, you said, not what I want, what you want. And if this book tells me to live a certain way and I don't feel like it or I don't want to, it no longer matters because I'm dead. Consider yourself dead to your trespasses and sin, your old life. You are made alive in Christ. So unwholesome talk has no place in your life. This is, what, this is the whole book of Ephesians. You're seated in heavenly realms with Jesus. Live like it, act like it. Let your faith be lived out. Let what Jesus has done on the inside of you be proved by how you talk and how you live and what you watch and how you do things. Because here's the thing, we don't believe you go to hell instantly for disobeying Jesus. The first time you, I mean, this, this was preached back in the day that, you know, if Jesus comes back and you're in the theater, he's not coming in there for you. That's not salvation. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But here's the thing, if I continue to let my flesh dictate how I live, I will stop up the flow of God's grace in my life. I won't walk in victory if I live according to the flesh. And eventually, if I keep living that way, if I keep deliberately sinning, there's no sacrifice left. In other words, your heart can get so hard that you literally turn away from your faith. That's the warning that we've already had throughout the book of Hebrews. And that's how he ties it together. So, we've got a lot more ground to cover. Lord, help us. Okay, 
Verse 13, this is today. <laughs> that was just all recap. Praise Jesus. <laughs> I know you're all like, really? <laughs> See, you missed so many weeks. Either that or I didn't communicate it right, but either way. Verse 13, for example, okay, the promises that we're gonna inherit, here's our example. There was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name saying, I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, that's endured by the way, and he received what God had promised. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. Without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. Okay, he bound himself with an oath. God, verse 18, God gave both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so God gives this, or the writer gives, through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, this example of God's promise and how to inherit all of his promises. In essence, every promise that God has ever made gets traced back to his original promise to Abraham, okay? Every promise in the scripture that God has ever made to us as believers, as followers, as children, all points back to this first promise, okay? I wish I had time to cover all of the stuff in this chapter, but it would take us years to cover all of it. And so maybe we'll come back and do Hebrews again and we'll look at other parts. But we've got to understand the gist of what he's saying is, this, these promises that God has given, here's how you inherit them. Through patience, through faith and endurance, and by keeping on loving others, okay? Those three things are gonna keep coming up throughout the book of Hebrews. And so what the author does is he refers back to Genesis chapter 22, and this is what he quotes. The Lord saying to Abraham, because you have obeyed me. What? Because you have obeyed me. This chapter is where God says to him, take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And in response to, okay, God, I have faith in you, but I'm not doing that. Then you don't have faith. Abraham had faith. It showed up because he took his son, the promise, and he took him to the mountain and he was gonna kill him. I mean, this is insane, isn't it? Humanly speaking. But God had to show us who we're going to follow, what real faith is. Real faith is taking the promise that you've been seeking from God and even putting that thing on the altar and trusting that whatever God says do is right. He wanted us to be sure. 
because you have not disobeyed me, you withheld even your only son, your only son, I swear by my own name, I swear by my own name, his oath, that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed all because you obeyed me. The original promise that God made to Abraham is back in Genesis chapter 12. That was the repeat. But it's, it's in essence the same thing. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. I will, you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who mistreat you, who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's his promise and he has kept his promise. The writer of Hebrews is reminding these good Hebrews, God has been faithful to that covenant. He has been faithful to that promise. And so you can be sure God will always keep his promise. You will inherit. He, remember, these guys are tired. They're weary. They've been persecuted. They're losing their families. They're being killed for sport. Their, their lives are being turned upside down. And he's saying to them, you will inherit the promise. Don't get weary. Don't turn back. Don't stop. Don't become indifferent to the things you've heard. Keep putting it into practice. Keep being obedient to the word that you received. See, the thing about this promise that God made to Abraham, he even said right before the, the Israelites go into the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses prophesies that the people of Israel are gonna go into the promised land and what's gonna happen is they're gonna eat food that they didn't plant, they're gonna start becoming lazy and they're gonna turn away from God and God is gonna come to them and he's gonna judge them and he's actually gonna take them into captivity. He's gonna remove them from the land and as you go through the Old Testament, this happens. This happens more than once. They get removed from the land. All through the, the Old Testament, there's these prophecies. God's saying, stop it. And then they get oppressed and then they cry out. This is our study on Wednesday night from the book of Judges. This pattern. But here's the thing. God stays faithful to his original covenant. Even though the nation of Israel is removed from the land, he brings them back from exile. That's the Babylonian captivity. He prophesied that through Jeremiah it would be 70 years. And Daniel reads it and says it's gonna be 70 years. God's gonna take us back into the land of Israel. And so in response to that, Daniel starts fasting and praying for God's word to come to pass. He doesn't celebrate. He doesn't have a Holy Ghost hoedown and just say, oh, I'm just gonna claim that promise. No, he's gonna claim the promise by fasting and praying. Oh, we have faith that God's gonna deliver us. And our faith is shown because we start fasting and praying for God to deliver us. Do you see how this ties together? It's not just what we say is in our hearts. It's what we do with our lives. And if you're waiting to start feeling like fasting and praying, if you're waiting to start feeling like reading the scriptures more, it ain't coming until you start doing it. When you start praying, it actually causes the desire to pray more in your life. But we're waiting for someone to come through a prayer line and pray for us and give us the desire to do it. And God says, you know what? I'm giving you the desire. And as you start taking the step of faith to do it and to do it more and to do it regularly, and you start taking that step, I'll meet you there and I'll give you grace to do it. But he's not giving us more grace until we act on the grace we've already been given. That makes sense? So he prophesies that he's gonna stay faithful to the covenant and here's the thing. 
God's original promise to, Mo, to Abraham, listen to this. Today on the earth, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, all three groups point back to Father Abraham. I would say his name is pretty famous. That's the majority of our world today, okay? 54 million Jews, or excuse me, 5.4 million Jews, and 5 million in the U.S. 5.4 million live in Israel, 5 million live in the U.S., and there's about a million scattered throughout the world. Over 11 million Jews come from this one guy. I mean, his descendants are pretty numerous. All nations of the earth are gonna be blessed through you. I've only got one word for you, Jesus. All nations of the world are being blessed through Abraham because of Jesus. And every nation that blesses Israel gets blessed. Please do not mistake the fact that, we'll get to it. So here's the everlasting covenant to Abraham. We already see it coming to pass. Even more than the Hebrews we see it. Because the Jews, in AD 70 when, when Rome fell, the Jews were actually displaced from their land to the point that no, if you don't know history, you're missing it. No nation of Israel existed from the fall of the Roman Empire until 1948. There was no nation of Israel. If you've read the book, Fiddler on the Roof, or you've seen the play, the Jewish man was just so, I long for my homeland. And the Jews forever were longing to be restored to their homeland, but it wasn't there. And they've been persecuted for years that persecution culminates in World War II with the atrocities of the Holocaust. Now, God did not author the persecution of his people through the Holocaust, but he used it to restore them to their homeland. Because when, when the Jews were liberated after World War II, the world's looking on, what are we gonna do with these Jews? They've been displaced, they've been mistreated, and so the world comes up with a plan. Let's reestablish their land. The nation of Israel, let's bring it back. Take all of these Jews that have been displaced. I believe it was, let me look for my number. 650,000 Jews were displaced and put back into the nation of Israel. And the UN decides to vote on whether to do this or not. It comes down to one vote. Do you know who cast the deciding vote? President Truman. President Truman on May 14th 1948 cast the deciding vote for Israel to be restored to their land. And so let me read the prophecies. Isaiah chapter 11. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people, those who remain in Assyria and northern Egypt and southern Egypt and Ethiopia and Elam and Babylonia and Hamath and all the distant coastlands. He will raise a flag among the nations and assemble the exiles of Israel. He will gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. Then at last, the jealousy between Israel and Judah will end. For all of those years, there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, but when they restored Israel to the land in 1948, there's Israel. There's no more Judah, there's no more Israel. It's one nation in this land. And if that's not enough for you, look at Isaiah chapter 66, verse eight. Who has ever seen anything as strange as this? Who ever heard of such a thing? Has a nation ever been born in a single day? Has a country ever come forth in a mere moment? But by the time Jerusalem's birth pains begin, her children 
will be born in a day, in a day. And so you know what happened in 1948? Everyone thought Jesus was coming back right away. Boom. <laughs> because we forget with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, okay? So just because that happened, that's a fulfillment of end time prophecy, but it doesn't mean it's gonna happen tomorrow. It could happen tomorrow. We're living in the last days. We don't know when the Lord will return. But we, we look at this, and I'm amazed at the history of Israel. 650,000 Jews returned to a land surrounded by 30 million Arabs who hate them. And for years, they've tried to just completely wipe them off the face of the earth. If you know the history of the Six-Day War in 1967, when all of the Arab nations started bringing their, their tanks, their armies right to the border of Israel, little Israel, still just, what, 20 years old, they pile up there, these 30 million Arabs ready to just annihilate this small, tiny little nation. And in six days, the nation of Israel fired the first shot. They saw all this happening. They're, they're like, we're not gonna sit here and wait for you to come. We're gonna come to you. They, they humiliated the Arab nations around them. Humiliated. You know, that intensified the hatred that the Arab nations around them feel for the nation of Israel. Look at the history. If God can do this, what's impossible for him? If he was so faithful to his covenant that he made to Abraham back in the day, why, why are we talking about this? Because look how faithful he is. And he's gonna be as faithful to you. Now, I promise you that the fulfillment of this isn't done yet because today in the nation of Israel, there are what we call Zionists. Zionists are secular Jews meaning they're Jews by heritage, but their hearts have not been turned back to the Lord. They've not recognized Jesus as Messiah. So there's a future fulfillment of this prophecy still yet to come. There will come a day when the Jews will recognize Jesus as Messiah and turn their hearts back to him. It's prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 36, where Ezekiel is in the valley of dry bones, and he puts his spirit in them and breathes life into them. So there's a future fulfillment coming. But we're gonna talk today about our promise, the promise that God has made to us. How do we inherit it? The same way that Moses did, excuse me, that Abraham did. Abraham inherited the promise by his faith and his endurance. I love that the scripture says, Abraham waited patiently. We know he did not wait perfectly, but he waited patiently. And waiting does not mean idly sitting by, it means being obedient. It means when God speaks, you do it. He waited patiently. He died only having one descendant, but he never wavered from believing that God could be faithful. He died before his one descendant even had a wife. He took his one descendant up on a mountain and was ready to kill him at the word of the Lord. So don't say that he just waited patiently by twiddling his thumbs. No, he obeyed the word of the Lord. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping or putting confidence in God, believing that he would become the father of many nations. God said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. God said, <clears throat> and Abraham's faith did not weaken. How many of you think Abraham's faith looked like it weakened a little bit at least? But the scripture says it didn't weaken. There's no, God's not looking to condemn you. He's not looking for you to be perfect in following his promises, just patient, enduring. Okay, so when you misstep, just get up and continue to be enduring and patient. 
with the promise of God. Don't worry about being perfect yet. Just be enduring and patient with God. Abraham never wavered. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. His faith grew stronger through testing. His faith grew stronger through persecution. His faith grew stronger through trial. That's how his faith grew stronger. And so if our prayer always is, Lord, get me out of this situation. It's painful. It's hard. I want easy life. And God says, no, let perseverance finish its work in you. Just overcome that trial. Put faith and trust in me in that moment. Continue to trust. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. That means when Jesus came and fulfilled the requirements of the law and he died and shed his blood so that those who put faith in him can be reborn in our spirits, we can receive every promise of God now. The, the thing is, there are things in our lives that stop up the flow of God's promise in our lives. Jesus said, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, neither will your heavenly father forgive you. So even though forgiveness is offered to all men, you can actually stop forgiveness from flowing into your life by forgiving or by refusing to forgive others. There are things we can do that stop up the flow of God's grace and power, the fulfillment of his promise in our lives by our disobedience. This hope that he says, this confidence, this truth that we have is an anchor for our souls. It's an anchor for our souls. I, I shared this with you last week just briefly, but... I put the scripture references up there if you want to look at it. Our bodies are made up of three parts. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 is the one place in scripture that actually identifies all three parts in one verse. Now, all three parts are identified throughout scripture. Our body is really talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This body is broken. It's decayed. It's experiencing the result of sin, okay? It will never be redeemed, okay? This body is going to get cast off. 1 Corinthians 15 says this body will be cast off. You'll get a new body. You're going to be changed. You're going to get a resurrected body that's very similar to the body Jesus had when he was resurrected from the dead. He could eat. He could fellowship with his disciples, but he was not limited in the same way that our earthly bodies were, but he could be touched. Okay? He wasn't a spirit when he was raised from the dead. He had a body, but it wasn't the physical body he had when he died. That's the same thing that Paul refers to. The second part of our body is the spirit. The spirit is what's in us. It's eternal. It lasts forever. It is separated from God by sin at birth. We are dead in our spirit. But when we put faith in Christ, instantly we become alive. And here's the thing. If you put faith in Christ, if you agree that you've broken God's law, that Jesus died as your punishment for breaking God's law, and you put confidence in that, and you confess him as Lord, saying, Lord, no longer my life, your life. I'm gonna live your way. I'm following you. If you just make that declaration, Your spirit becomes alive instantly, boom. And here's the thing, you don't have to feel anything. Some people feel things, other people feel nothing. You just have to do what's true. And your spirit comes alive. Now there's a third part of our bodies that's referenced, by the way, that's Romans 8, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, 
all spirit dead, spirit alive, boom. Soul, this soul, because this hope, this hope that God keeps his promises is an anchor for our soul. What's our soul? Our soul is our mind, intellect, our will, our emotions, our feelings. This is our soul. Our soul, Romans chapter 12 verse two says, if you wanna be transformed into a new person, I mean, we already are in our spirit, but if you wanna actually see that transformation, you have to renew your mind. See, the battleground between flesh, body, and spirit is our soul. The hope that God keeps his promises is supposed to anchor our soul. How do you anchor your soul? You get in the word. How do you anchor your soul? You come into his throne. You receive mercy. You receive grace. You anchor your soul on the promises of God. That's the battleground. Peter tells us this in 1 Peter chapter 2. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, keep away from the worldly desires that wage war against your soul. The ESV, the English Standard Version, says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, residents, temporary residents and foreigners, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And so when we participate in the passions of our flesh, they are waging war against our soul. They are causing our soul to align more with our flesh than with our spirit. But we no longer walk according to the flesh, we walk according to the spirit. And so we take thoughts captive and we make them obedient to Christ. We don't live by what we want to do because now I'm dead and my body is crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live. I don't care if I wanna do it. I don't care if I feel like doing it. I do it because it's truth. And I'm gonna follow my spirit that's alive and not my flesh that's dying. No matter what my emotions are doing at the time, I do what is right, and I keep doing it. I am not gonna get weary in doing what is right. That doesn't mean I won't feel weary. It means I will refuse to quit. I'm gonna trust that God can be faithful to his promise because he always has been, and he always will be. This hope is an anchor for our soul. The hope that we have in Christ is two-part. There's the hope for now, and there's the hope for later. We believe that Christ can in any moment intervene in our lives, and every promise God has ever made can be fulfilled in a moment. We believe he can heal. We believe he can save. We believe he can deliver. We believe he can set free. We believe that God does these things, that he wants to intervene in our lives, and so we ask him. And when we ask him, we don't doubt. We don't go to him and say, well, God, maybe I've been good enough to ask you this. No, you haven't. You have no chance of being good enough to ask him for anything. You don't ask him based on your behavior. You don't ask him on how the soul is doing. You know, you've waged war on the soul, and this week, you know, the... the, the The scales have tipped in your favor, so I'm gonna hear your request. No, you always ask on the merit of what Christ has done for us. And his blood and his blood alone is the only thing that brings victory, healing, deliverance into our lives. But at the same time, we can stop up the flow of God's grace into our lives by giving into the passions of our flesh. 
they wage war against our souls. They get us to stop even asking. They get us to stop even trusting. They get us to stop obeying. They get us to stop pressing in. The more you give in to the passions of the flesh, the less desire you will have to read the word. The less desire you will have to pray. The less desire you will have to go to church and worship with other believers. The less desire you will have to actually worship when you go to church. You see, the, less we, the more we feed our flesh, the more it wages war in our soul, and our soul is just like being torn back and forth. Thank God he sets us free from that. So even though I lost the war for my soul this week, you know what? I come into the, the throne room of God today boldly, and I boldly confess that I have lost the war this week, and I receive on the merit of Jesus forgiveness, mercy, grace, that make sense? Oh, praise the Lord. One last scripture I want to share with you comes from Ephesians chapter 4. A few weeks ago, we, we talked about communion and taking the body and blood of Jesus, but... Um, taking it in an unworthy manner and how sometimes we misunderstand what that means. And in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, unworthy manner means we, we take it without recognizing or ministering to, being a part of, being in the body of Christ. We don't recognize it. We're indifferent towards others. And that's what the church was doing. Somebody was eating a lot. Somebody wasn't eating anything. And they didn't care. And he says, how can that be? Because you're, you're in the body. Remember when I said we, we accept Jesus and he's our personal savior? Um, and we sometimes think that uh, Jesus, you know, we've heard the statement, Jesus would have died if you were the only one. He would have died for you. And that statement is true, but it's half a statement. Okay, he would have died if you were the only one, but you weren't. You weren't. And remember back at the beginning, he said, keep on loving each other. See, our obedience to God, and this is why God, throughout the New Testament, they're talked up, they're, they, they make it a big deal when we're out of relationship with one another, when we're ignoring the needs of one another, when, you know, I'm, how I obey God, I, you know, I know it affects the whole body in a bad way, but, you know, I gotta do what's best for me. As if those things are at odds. As if somehow God can't tell us what to do that's really going to benefit our own families and yet benefit the body as a whole also. But what happens is, again, we try to do what we feel is right without really listening to God. And in our day today, there's a movement away from the, what's called the formalized church. Because of all of the ways that the church has been uh, mistreating people and abusing people for years and we try to weigh people down with legalism and all of these things and we're really gonna dive into this next week but there's this connection to the body that is so important. And in Ephesians chapter four, the apostle Paul ties this anchoring our bodies, our soul together as a body. There's a, not only your individual element in this, there's a corporate element, and I want you to see it before we dismiss. And so, in Ephesians chapter four, this is what he says. Christ gave gifts to the church. He gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave evangelists, and he gave pastors, and he gave teachers. 
And their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church. That doesn't mean increase the church in numbers. It means to strengthen the church. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians and he tells them what's wrong in their lives, he's building up the church. When Paul writes to the church and says, expel the immoral, sinful brother from your life, the one that's having sex with someone that's not his wife and saying that's okay, uh, get him out of the church. Don't, don't do that. That's building up the church, okay? These people, these gifts have been given to us to build up the church. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son, we'll be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. That means till death do us part. Okay? Because the only time you and I are ever going to measure up to the full and complete standard of Christ is up there. We strive for it down here, but please don't get in your mind that ever we're going to be perfect at this. That's why we have to bear with each other and forgive each other. Then he goes on and says this. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We're not gonna be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We're not gonna be influenced by people when they try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. Because see, there's, there's a new teaching, but it's not really that new, it's just a recycled old one that's floating around today that, you know, we're all a part of the universal church. And so we really don't need an expression of a local body of believers. We just need the universal church. We just need to exercise our faith. And yet the body, the body of Christ that we're supposed to recognize has apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists in it because all of those five gifts operate differently. All of those five gifts to the church will help us in different ways to grow and mature and help us to stay anchored, okay, anchored in our souls. And so we can't be tossed around by every new wind of teaching. And that's where we're gonna go next week when we talk about a little bit more about the mystery of Melchizedek. But here's what we're gonna do today. Because the scripture says, in the end of the, the chapter in Hebrews that we just read, this hope that God keeps his promises, on, his promises, this hope that anchors our soul, it's the reminder to us that it anchors our soul, leads us right into the presence of God. It reminds us again that the, the presence of God, the temple of God, Jesus tore down the curtain. You have direct access today. And so if your hope today is wavering, maybe the emotions, you're losing the battle for your soul, you right now in this moment can come right into the presence of God and you can get mercy. You can get mercy for where you've been condemned and feel guilty and feel like you, you know, I've lost the battle for my soul. Come and get mercy. Come and get mercy. There are weeks I lose the battle for my soul so intensely. And there are other weeks I do pretty good in my own eyes and I probably don't do very good at all because that's just in my own eyes. But here's the thing, it doesn't matter how I did. What matters is right now I'm coming into the presence of God, I'm gonna receive mercy and I'm gonna receive grace to conform my life to him, to conform my life to what he says is right, to change how I live out my life, the things I love, the things that I do, the way I treat other believers, the way I treat my enemies. All of that needs to change, I know that. I know that there's flaws in my life that need to be worked out. I'm grateful that my spirit is made alive with Christ. I hear him today say, Abba Father. My spirit is crying out, Abba Father. 
We know we're his children. And if you don't know you're his child, then you need to go into his throne room today and say, God, I need the assurance that I'm your child today. I'm struggling. I just need to know it deep in my spirit that I'm your child. Because it all starts there. If you try to please him out of your obedience, you're never gonna win that battle. It's gotta, we've gotta be obedient out of a place of position. And so we're gonna come into his throne and we're gonna come and receive not only his mercy, but his grace. Because here's the thing, God's made promises to us. There's healing, there's deliverance, there's salvation. All of the promises God has made, they're yes. But here's the thing, we gotta keep asking. We gotta keep seeking. We gotta keep knocking. Oh, I believe God heals today. When's the last time you asked him to heal? Well, I believe God heals today. No, because if we believe God heals, we won't stop asking. Because that's obedience. Because he told us, don't stop asking. Jesus told a parable about why you should always pray and not give up. If we believe God is, is the salvation for our world, why do we watch more Fox News than we spend praying? Are you, are you here? I don't care what political candidate you support. I don't care what can, political candidate I support. There's not one of the four candidates that are gonna be on the ballot that are gonna do anything for our country if God doesn't intervene. And here's the thing, if God intervenes, it really doesn't matter which of the four are there because the heart of the king is in his hand and he directs it where he wants. Put your faith in him. Stop worrying about it. Put your trust in him. I want to invite you to stand with me. I know we've gone a little over, but sorry, the little, I was so excited about sharing with you about the nation of Israel and how God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his promise to us. He will not go back on his word. And so as we close in prayer, I want to encourage you, if you need to find a place of prayer to get your soul anchored a little bit, do that. If you need prayer, if you didn't come for prayer and you want someone to pray with you for a situation in your life, you need prayer for healing, you need prayer for salvation, you need prayer for deliverance, we're gonna, we're gonna trust God to meet you right here. And so I wanna encourage you to come. And so Father, as we come to the end of our time together, God, as we come to the end of this worship service, this gathering here, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that we have been reminded of today. God, that, that every promise you've made to us can be traced back to Abraham. And God, you were faithful to that. You're still being faithful to that. And you will forever be faithful to your promise to us. They are yes in Christ. What he did secured every promise for us. And God, even if we don't see that promise come to pass in this life, we know for sure, for certain, that he who began a good work in us us will be faithful to complete it in us. We know that you will be faithful to, to guard what we have entrusted to you. And so God, we entrust it to you. We entrust our spirit, our soul to you today. And we know that you're going to stay faithful to us because it's who you are. You promised it. You've told us in your word. And so God, by your spirit today, we ask that you'd help anchor our soul, help anchor our mind, help anchor our will, help anchor our emotions in the truth of that word, that you 
will never forsake us and you will never turn your back on us. But God, help us to be diligent with the promises that you've given to us. Help us to stir up the gift that you've placed in our lives. God, that we would no longer give in to the passions of our flesh that wage war against our soul. But God, that we would stay faithful to you allowing your spirit just to cleanse us. God, to open up more, more of this vessel to receive your grace, to receive your mercy, that we could be conduits of that. God, not that we could have more mercy and grace in our lives, but more of it would flow out of our lives. God, we know that you judge, the, you judge our faith not by how much we have in our hearts, but by how much is flowing out of our lives, how it's impacting those around us, how it's touching the relationships around us. God, we want to be your obedient children. And so Holy Spirit, help us today to get our souls anchored to the truth of your word. Help us to prove our faith by our responses, by our obedient actions. Convict us where we're wrong. Lead us to a place of repentance, of turning from what we want to what you want. And so Holy Spirit, seal these words in our heart. Help us this week when things don't go the way we want it. Help us this week when we're tired and we want to quit. To not be led by our thoughts, by our emotions, by our will, by our own desires. But help us to walk according to the Spirit and put to death the deeds of our flesh. Holy Spirit, pour out mercy and grace on our lives today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to be prayed for, again, our altars are open. We'd love the chance to pray with you. If you need to be dismissed, uh, please do it quietly. Let this be a place of prayer for those that want to spend time in prayer or be prayed for before they go. God bless you as you go today.